Hey everybody, welcome to Life Death Law, a podcast about end-of-life planning that won't make you want to hit yourself on the head with a stick. I promise. I'm Liza Hanks, I'm your host. I spent more than 20 years writing wills and trusts for people, and I'm here to tell you, end-of-life planning isn't a tedious chore or a complete bummer. In fact, it's really important to do for the people you love the most, and you might find it surprisingly meaningful too. I can't wait to get started with today's episode, but before we do, a quick thanks to Redesigning the End, our sponsor. Redesigning the End offers great online courses to the next generation of death care leaders, and I'm really honored to have their support. Are you ready? Let's go. Today's guest is Adam Tendler. He's a recipient of the Lincoln Center Award for Emerging Artists 2022 and, quote, currently the hottest pianist on the American contemporary classical scene. But that's not why he's on Life Death Law today. The reason he's on the show today is that when his father died and he received a manila envelope full of surprise cash, he decided not to spend it paying off his credit card. Instead, he commissioned a series of original works from amazing composers on the general theme of inheritance and loss. And he put it together into a performance piece called Inheritances. Listen as Adam discusses what prompted him to do this amazing creative thing how the work allowed him to process the grief that he felt at his father's death, but most importantly, how this work has created a space for both the composers and Adam and us, the audience, to address the complexity of loss, the complexity of love, the complexity of death through music. Welcome, Adam. Adam, welcome to the show. And I asked you to be on the show because for all the people I've spoken to over the last five years of this podcast, I've never had a musician on. And since we're talking about meeting end of life with grace, music has yeah. to be a huge part of that. And so I wondered if for a start, you could describe the Inheritance Project and how it came to be. And then we could talk some about why you think it resonates so much with people. And well, I have a million questions. So let's just start with <laughs> setting the story because you can do it better than I can, I think. Well, the story of Inheritances, which is a program, it's a recital program, essentially, of new work that I paid for composers to compose pieces for me. It's a commissioning project at its core, but the sense of Inheritances and even the title, that all came later than the idea. The origin story is that my father passed away in the October before COVID, just to give people some perspective of the timeline here. So it was before COVID in the fall, and he passed away unexpectedly. And I hadn't spoken to him probably in many months. And that's not unusual. That wasn't unusual for us. We would probably speak twice, two or three times a year, usually anniversary, like, you know, birthday or holiday. Anyway, I received a call from my stepmother that he had been really ill for the previous couple of days and passed away on their couch. The grief was very confusing because I wasn't even sure what I was grieving. He hadn't been a huge part of my life, so to speak. It was almost like I was grieving the closing of a chapter. And so I found myself reliving old tapes. I went to places that he and I went together. That includes waterfalls. That also includes Burger King. You know, I just found myself in very odd places trying to, I don't know, be in the spot where I might have been with him. And it was a kind of just a surreal few days. 
but I was also kind of mediating kind of family issues. The whole thing was so bizarre. And then suddenly it was over. There was a viewing, there was a burial. And then I was back here in Brooklyn and I was like, what? what just happened? Like, what even happened? And I know that that might not be the most unique experience when someone passes away that suddenly all of the rites and rituals are over. And then there's a sense of, well, did I process that? And long story short is I just wasn't sure I did. There was also this question of not really in my sense, but floating around of, is there? And we hear about people leaving inheritances to their children. I wasn't so concerned about this, as I said in the New York Times piece about this whole project. I thought if it was going to be anything, it was going to be weird. So there's a lot to that story that I find very human and very common, which is when you have a parent who's a little bit difficult, you're kind of mourning the loss of a relationship that didn't ever come to be. There's a sense of, you know, loss. Exactly. Right. It's not like the Hallmark card. It's like somebody difficult right. died and there was no resolution at all. And so I think that that's an experience that's common to a lot of us, right? Where this life goes on and then it ends and you're like, really? That, that's it? That's what happened? Like we never had those conversations. We never resolved the issues. They came to the end of their life and here I am. That really resonates with me. There was a sense of exactly that. Like, well, there was an opportunity probably to develop something. And now it's just that access. That's the word I kind of keep saying is like that access is now gone. Maybe that's why I went right back to my childhood places, because that was the closest I'd ever been with him. One of the things that really intrigued me about the title of your work, Inheritances, is that it's such a double-edged word, right? It's, you know, he left you something, he left you money, but he also left you a lot right. of emotional baggage and right. a whole life that never was perhaps the relationship you wanted with him. And that's also so common. Right. We leave behind more than money. We leave behind a lot of things and money is only right. one of them. And so yeah, that's exactly. one of the things I always want to explore in this podcast is, you know, what do we leave behind? And could we be more intentional about that? So as I read the story in the Times, you came into a, a bag of cash, manila envelope full of cash unexpectedly. It was in a manila envelope. I found out about it months later. I found, so he passed away in mid-October and I found out about it around the holidays and I received it on New Year's Day. So a couple months later. And an amount of money that could like easily disappear into credit card bills <laughs> or a couple months of a mortgage or rent. And so exactly what I expected. And just like how I said, like, I thought the inheritance would be weird. It's exactly what I thought he would think. So what did you decide to do with that complicated inheritance from your dad? So I sat with it for a little while and then I went to a concert <laughs> and it was here in Brooklyn. I just was so moved by the music. It was a symphonic concert. And I just was like sitting in the balcony where I typically sit at this venue. And I was sitting there with like a beer. <laughs> I was just like, wow, this is exactly what it's all about for me. This is why I am here. This is what I do. It just hit me like instant that I could invest this cash into a commissioning project of my own and create works that might do this kind of same thing for other people, but that might also do this for me. My grief felt so muddled and my experience of grief felt so muddled and my sense of processing this loss felt almost non-existent. To invest it in a way that I would have to think about my father and that I would have to sort of confront his legacy in an almost constant way, I welcomed that. 
And so the idea was just to divvy that sum of cash up evenly between my friends. I'm a pianist and by default, a lot of my friends are these really spectacular composers. And I never really have the opportunity to commission music from people because it's usually a very formal process that can be totally unforgiving and that is reliant on committees and other people saying yes or no. And they can decide whether or not I get a certain amount of money to then commission a work. I've never had a tremendous amount of luck with that. For that reason, even though I play a lot of contemporary music, I've never felt like I commission enough music. Mm -hmm. And so I was sort of like, I can actually do that right now. Like this could actually just be like something I do. I'm in the position to commission new works. I could spend it all on one or I could actually create a program out of this. And so I've had harebrained ideas before <laughs> and then I kind of sleep on it. And then the next day it's like, all right, well, that was nice while it lasted, but <laughs> now not such a hot idea to me. And so I gave it a day or two and it just never went away, never faded. It just became more and more hot to me where I was like, no, this is exactly, I can't think of any other way as I kind of even describing it now. It was very practical. I mean, it was practical in the sense of processing something emotionally, but it was also practical in the sense of, well, this is a better investment than paying off my Chase Freedom card, you know, <laughs> or whatever. I thought of it as this is an investment. I can keep performing these works. I can keep living with these works. I can maybe record these works. So there was something quite practical about it, actually, in both a professional sense, but also in an emotional sense. Because I did think by the end of this, I might have a better grasp on my grief than I do right now. So the obvious next question is, having completed the process and ended up with 16 commission pieces that you've now performed, I think, three times, right? In Minneapolis, yes, LA, and New York. Did that happen? Did what you expect happen for you? It did. And so a weirder thing happened, which is COVID. <laughs> yeah. So just about the time that I reached out to these composers and had this idea, actually all of them said yes. And at the time there was actually 10, 10 of them. Okay. And they all said yes. All I had was the yes. I didn't have any pieces. I didn't have a venue. I didn't have anything. All I had was them agreeing to do it. And just about that time, COVID happened. And then it was sort of like, all right, there's bigger fish to fry here, which is, are any of us even going to survive this? Literally, of course, I don't, no pun intended, actually. But right. there was also just a sense professionally, because the performing arts were just completely frozen. None of us were performing. None of my composer friends were composing. And in terms of actually performing anything, there was now this kind of backlog in every single series of countless performances that needed to be rescheduled. So I don't know where this project fits in, but I also don't even know where I fit in. Because my career was at such a place where I was like, am I even going to get through this? Am I a cockroach who survives this meteor strike? <laughs> or am I a cockroach who does not? You know, I don't know. So that, in a way, froze the project and for a while, until the end of maybe that first COVID summer, when I started to think, okay, you know what? I'm going to start thinking practically again about just my life in music. And I do have this thing sort of in my back pocket none of it's developed but maybe i can actually redevelop this or kind of 
again, no pun intended, reincarnate this. So that's when I reached out to a very cool presenter based in Minneapolis called Liquid Music. And I've always wanted to work with them and particularly the director named Kate Nordstrom. And it was her idea where she said, you know what, this is great. I think we need more composers actually to make this even a fuller program. Cause I'd always told them, make your piece five minutes because I'm not giving you much money. <laughs> so make it five minutes or less, you know, this is a favor. She actually thought we should double it, which meant finding more money. And so I had no idea how to do that, but I did find some more funding. and. At the end of it, we ended up with 16 pieces and a premiere date. And I started to practice them as they came. And then I started to arrange them as they came. Okay, well, this piece should definitely be at the beginning. Each composer, they all knew about the origin story of this project, but that plus just kind of our own dialogues would trigger their own memories of their relationships with maybe their parents or just with grief or a, just the sense of inheritance. And I told them all, this is not a tribute to my father. This isn't even a program about grief, so to speak. That is where this came from, but that doesn't mean your piece needs to be about it. These composers danced around the idea of inheritance or were inspired by what I told them about my relationship with my father and the circumstances of this commission. And they responded in very, very personal ways. So for instance, when I received Forgiveness Machine and Missy told me a bit about her story, but she also said, I just want to keep it private. And she was like, this title, <laughs> Forgiveness Machine, the music itself speaks for itself. And when I heard it, I was like, well, this has to go at the beginning. That process repeated over and over. And these pieces started to kind of talk to each other. And I was like, well, this has to go after this. This has to go at the end. So I began a way of working and talking to these pieces as they began to talk to each other. And suddenly a program really was taking shape. And to answer your question about whether I had a sense of kind of processing the loss, I think yes, because especially as that first premiere started to approach. And even as that first premiere like actually happened, and I played these pieces for the first time, at the end of it, I found myself listening to music that my father listened to and having people sit down and they were listening to that music. And so suddenly, I don't know, it just felt like he really was there with me. And I don't even mean to sound corny, but it really did. It felt like we were sort of doing this thing together. Again, it wasn't about, well, I want this program to honor you. And this is about honoring your life. And people say that a lot of times, even still, they'll say, what a wonderful tribute to your father. And I think to myself, I know what you mean, and I know what you're trying to say, but that's actually not really what this program is. It's not really a tribute to him. Right. Because I don't think that's not what our relationship was. And I don't mean this in a mean way. I don't know if that's what he deserved. <laughs> I don't know if he deserves the tribute of like, here's this giant program devoted to you and honoring you. And plus these composers didn't know him. So it's not really a tribute to him, but what it was, what I hoped it would be, would be sort of a clearing, like a kind of a space within which everyone could enter. And these pieces, which were abstract enough, could actually create space for people to enter into each piece and take from them what they would. And so I needed that clearing for myself, for my own kind of process. And my hope was that it would extend to the composers and each of them would create a clearing for themselves 
which I think happened. And then the final step would be, okay, now we share this with people in this program and each of your works becomes a clearing and becomes a space within which everyone who listens to this music and to this program can then enter and take from it as they will and experience that kind of catharsis. And that is what really happened. So it kind of happened for me, but what was most gratifying was that these other things happened for other people, which is kind of all I ever really wanted. Yeah, which is why I invited you to come and talk with me today, because you wrote some about how after that first premiere, the audience stayed around and talked. And I'd love to hear more about how people responded to it, because I think your exploration of how complicated it is when people we love die and, you know, it wasn't the Hallmark card and it wasn't the memorial tribute. It was something so much more complicated and final than that. And I'm so curious what kind of feedback you got and if you got any sense of why it resonated so much with people or what they said to you afterward, because I think we're all those people, right? All of us, especially right. after the pandemic, but all of us anyway, anybody who's a human being, you know, is going to confront this complicated dance of death and life and our expectations and our disappointments. It's a lot to understand and music can create this space that's different than words. Music can just kind of bypass a lot of nonsense in our minds and take us somewhere really elemental. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the feedback you've gotten or the responses you've gotten from the audience. I was really surprised after that first premiere in Minneapolis, which came very fast. Like I said, suddenly these pieces were coming in and suddenly we had the premiere date. And before I knew it, I was like, oh my gosh, this is happening next week. <laughs> it was very weird. I'll never forget it, that when it was over, usually people just beeline for the door. They're like ready for dinner or whatever, or drink. And everyone just like, just sat in their seats. It wasn't one of these shows where everyone came and they're all my friends. It was like, I don't know anybody in Minneapolis. Case in point, when I came out, it's not like I was flanked by adoring fans. <laughs> Tell me what they love. They were just like doing their thing. And they all just were sitting in their seats still talking. And I was like, whoa, this is something I've never seen before after a recital or any kind of classical music concert where people are just talking to each other about what just happened. Well, that's really cool. I couldn't ask for more. So there's 16 pieces in all, and all of them are performed in the program. Because of that, it's not like they all love one piece. And so different people, what I found was so exciting was that people who talked to me, they would always come with like different pieces. And I would always be surprised or I just would always be really intrigued and interested about which ones affected which people and for which reasons. The program begins with a piece by Laurie Anderson, which is really a very conceptual piece where she actually used an AI program that she helped develop. She took materials that I gave to her things my father said, pictures of my father and me, and this AI program kind of spat back poetry based on Play one her own of something work. you've never played before. The piece is sort of her voice reading that text, but also telling me things to do, like play something you've never played before, play something your father would not understand. 
and play something your father would really love. And to me, that piece, which starts the program, in a way it's playful, in a way it sort of sets the tone. I was surprised that like one of the people in LA, for instance, the camera person for that show came up to me afterwards and she said, I'm really sorry, but it got really shaky during the first piece, during Laurie Anderson's piece, because I just started to cry. <sighs> and I was like, I was like, well, I'm not glad, but I'm, I'm gratified to hear you had that reaction. But I was like, really? That one? <laughs> because to me, there's a certain like setting the tone of that piece. There's also sort of a coldness, which I think is nice actually to that piece. It's not a super emotional piece. As the program progresses, especially toward the end of the show, it becomes very, very intensely personal. And each piece becomes even like really, really intimate. And so a lot of people tend to like mention some of the latter pieces because they're just so intensely personal and easy to kind of enter into. But that's not to say that's true for everybody. So this person, the very first piece in the program, before, you know, the mind is getting sort of matched by listening to all this music and you become more and more receptive. That wasn't even true for this person who's a camera person <laughs> who like sees a million shows a week. Something about that hit them. And so there is no kind of planning on my part of which work is going to affect which person and for which reason. Again, it's exactly what I wanted because I didn't want a program that was going to be so specific about my life and my experience and my father that it would become quite specific to me. Mm -hmm. I really wanted something as abstract and universal that people could just come to it and just enter it wherever they needed to. That was what was most gratifying was that these works serve that purpose for so many people. But people like even at the, this last program at 92nd Street Y, you could hear like sobs in the room. One of my friends was like, there was a woman behind me who was like inconsolable. And I thought to myself, that's not my plan. Right. You know, right. my plan isn't to emotionally destroy my listener, but I think just the whole general overtone of the program and what people are coming there. It's almost like going to church in a way, almost like going to a spiritual gathering where the energy in the room can just kind of like Epsom salt, like pull stuff out of you. I feel like that happens in this program with people. Again, my intention wasn't to create the most modeling, sentimental program. And in fact, I was really nervous about that. I was like, I don't want this to be indulgent. I don't want this to be overly sad or just dark and gloomy. Right. I don't think it is, but that doesn't matter because people were still entering this space and just having these really extreme, powerful personal reactions. Did you find that people were thinking about their parents or do you think people were just more generally thinking about other loved people that they've lost or their own mortality or what? You know, do you have any sense of what you were evoking in your listeners? I don't know. If I'm completely honest with you, and it's a disappointing answer, I don't know. But I do think that when I got emails, for instance, from people, a lot of times those emails would mention their parents. Okay. And even when people read the New York Times piece and I was getting emails from strangers, a lot of times what I was hearing was not about the loss of a child, for instance, or of a best friend, but it was usually about, you know, I had a really tricky relationship with my parent or relationships between sons and their fathers are very difficult. You know, so I was getting a lot of that. 
one email, for instance, that I got, and this was a, a friend who I haven't seen in a very long time. And I didn't even know he came to the show here in New York. And he said, well, my father passed away. And it sounded like we had a different relationship than you had with your father. But in the aftermath, I'm still unraveling. I think the words he used were the mystery he left behind. And I find that that became something that this program evoked in people, kind of the mystery that is left behind by parents we lose. That was true for a lot of the composers too. And it's not even true for not meaning even that these composers lost their parents, but some of them were sort of, as they would talk to me about their process of composing these pieces, they spoke about their parents as if they were sort of foggy, mysterious figures that they're still trying to figure out, even if they're alive. Yeah. I mean, in a way, we don't know our parents before they had us. <laughs> yeah. You know, when my mom died, I got the job of putting together all these pictures for her memorial. And mm-hmm. I was stunned, you know, that she had once been 16, you know? Yeah. Like, that never occurred to me in some weird way, right? Like, in that sort of <laughs> egoism as a, even as an adult, you know, her life began when mine did. And yeah, it was such a wild experience to get pictures from people who'd known her as a young woman. And to put that, that that together. And I thought, you know, you're right. Our parents are mysterious to us. And sometimes death is the time when we realize we're never going to know the answers to those questions because we never ask them. Right. 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 Exactly. And if we did, who knows what kind oh, right. of answer we'd we might get. get a really evasive and unsatisfactory answer, too. I kind of grappled with that, too, with him, where I kept sort of thinking, well, again, there was this what if. One thing I want to say, just in response to what you just said, is one of the composers, Angelica Negron, who's again, I have to just say, the composers in this program are insanely cool. (laughs) These are like the coolest composers you could ever ask for in a program. And Angelica Negron is one of them. But her piece, the title is You Were My Age. She actually drew her inspiration from exactly that experience of going through photos of her mother and even, I think, of her grandmother, but just seeing her mother at the same age as she was and having that kind of response of being like, here's this woman who my whole life I've kind of put into this category and who I've regarded and treated a certain way, but here she is out of context and here she is as my age. And so, yeah, the piece, which is actually a very playful it's just a very playful dance-like piece. She actually says it should be played like you're dancing. Didn't one of the composers end rather abruptly their piece because their own parent died? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So one of the composers, Christopher Saron, the composer you're mentioning, so he was among the first to know. And it finally became time for the composers to start really writing these pieces. And we knew the premiere date and everything. He began to compose his piece, I think, but right around the time that his father fell unexpectedly ill, and then his father died. And his piece, which is called Area of Refuge, is really like this kind of, it's a very uncharacteristic piece for him because his music, it can tend to be very kind of rhythmically driven, very exciting, really kind of harmonically grounded in a way that can feel really satisfying. And this piece is really, really subdued, harmonically kind of unclear and obtuse like it's hard to know really what 
it's dissonant in a way. It's sort of like a hazy, weird piece that feels very between worlds and it never resolves. It's almost like the single chord that just goes on for three or four minutes and it becomes a sort of like echo chamber. And then you're right, at the end it just ends really abruptly. He and I worked together on that piece, and I remember him saying, there's no pun intended, but I want a sense at the end that you're just pulling the plug. And I actually wrote that in my store. When I play that piece, I do an almost like a motion with my hand of pulling a plug, just because it helps me sort of like really just end the piece in such an abrupt way. You'd have to know that I'm doing that to know that I'm doing that. But just even that image of just unplugging a piece, just like we might unplug a ventilator. And several of the pieces kind of do that too, where they go really deep into a space and then it just is over to kind of go back to that theme of that you were mentioning about sort of guilt or maybe regret. I do wonder if that is a universal reaction to loss. I just feel like every time I've lost any person, there's always a sense afterward of I could have done better in this relationship. And I feel like that might be a somewhat universal thing. Did that come through in the music? I don't know. Chris's piece is one that's about grief or that is maybe about loss or that was a response to loss. All the pieces in the program aren't necessarily doing that, but it's just something I've thought about just myself and it's something I've heard from people in their responses to the program and to this theme of when we lose people and we actually are kind of confronted with the reality of not being able to develop or grow a relationship anymore. What it was is what it will always be. That sense, usually the response people have had and that I hear from people and that I've felt myself is, oh, well, that's a shame <laughs> because I could have done better or I could have done more. Well, not to go off into this space of self-hatred, Adam, uh, you, you, did, <clears throat> you did something really great with an unexpected inheritance and are creating this sacred space for people to feel things that they often don't know how to feel or where to feel. But you know, what really yeah. resonated for me about your story of inheritance is it's about living. I mean, you were at that concert right. and you were like, well, this is what I live for. And that yeah. in itself is such a beautiful inheritance, right? I mean, yeah. that your father's death gave you a certain insight into what makes your life meaningful. And that in itself yeah. is such an incredible inheritance from him and from all the people that we lose. And so, you know, I really love that your work isn't about death, really. It's about yeah. life. I like that. I would rather subscribe to that than that I'm like... You're the death guy. Yeah, walking around with a veil over my eyes or something. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> I agree. And to answer the question from way back, did it work? Did what I set out to do with this program, did it actually happen? And I truly think, yes, especially in this last kind of round where I've talked about it more, the more I tell the story of my father, the more I tell the story about this program and how it came to be. And the more I was actually practicing this music and kind of the first time I did it, everything was so new that I was just stressed out as a pianist. I was like, I hope I can play this program. I hope I can do this. <laughs> These notes are so new. There was a sense of that in the first two of just like, 
this music's really new as a professional and as a concert pianist. I just need to make sure that I execute this program properly. This third time, you know, doing it in, here in New York, I felt so close to the music and I felt like I'd played it enough that I wasn't so stressed out about playing the right notes, let's say. And I became way more tuned into what these pieces were actually saying and the experience I was actually trying to create for my listeners. And through that, I felt so much more tuned into what I had initially been trying to do with this program, which was think about my dad and think about our life together and think about what we built, what we didn't build, what this program sort of nudges and what it kind of nods to. I was able to sort of enter that space, just like my listeners, more so in this last performance than ever before. So I do feel that initial investment when I received that Manila envelope <laughs> was actually a good one. And that is a beautiful place to end. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I so appreciate you, you know, sharing with us the thinking behind the piece and the reaction that elicited in people and what a beautiful gift you've given all of us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm always excited to hear from anybody when they hear this story or when they hear this music or if they're just curious about it it actually feels really good because oftentimes any artist can feel like they sort of function in a vacuum and they just wonder if it's just for themselves and so i really welcome thoughts from people about how this affects them or resonates with them Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Life, Death, Law. To find out more about today's guests and to read the show notes for this episode, go to lifedeathlaw.com. And if you like this podcast, you might also like subscribing to my weekly Substack newsletter called Life, Death, Law. I'll have a link to that on the show notes as well. So take care and remember, when it comes to life, death, and law, we are all in the same boat. Until next time, I'm Liza Hanks. And please remember... The information on this podcast is for general information purposes only. Nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create, and receipt or listening does not constitute an attorney-client relationship.